BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am excited to be here today with two fantastic student doctors for a show that I think will be really, really useful for a lot of folks out there. So I have with me the president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Medical Student Component. Her name is Stacia Gribon. She's a fourth year medical student at St. George's University. And we also have Abigail Shermer, who's the president-elect of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Medical Student Component, and she's a third-year student at the Florida State University College of Medicine. So I think really a powerhouse duo here to help us think through this important topic. And that topic is, what is on the minds of medical students in applying in anesthesiology going into this unprecedented year of applications that has been completely reshaped by the COVID epidemic uh, or pandemic? So what we're what we've done, and I'm I'm really grateful to Stacia and Abby for this, is that they reached out and uh, created a survey. They reached out to the membership, so to a huge number of students throughout the country, and asked them what their concerns are, what questions they have, what's on their minds as they head into this unprecedented application season. And then they sent them to me, and I then sent them out to program directors in anesthesiology across the country, and got a lot of great responses back as a way to kind of get a feel to share with students of what PDs are thinking about their concerns this year. So we're now going to go through that. Uh, Abby and Stacia are going to take us through some of the questions, and I'll do my best to summarize the responses of the PDs. And I think this will be really helpful for folks uh, to hopefully allay some of the concerns or at least give you some more information to reduce some of that anxiety going in. I do want to say up front that nobody knows for sure what this is going to be like, Program directors haven't done this before. Students haven't done it before. So we're all going to be in that same boat. And that, that was reflected in some of the program director responses. You know, they said, look, we're, we're going to cut you some slack. And we asked that you cut us some slack too, because we don't know. We've never done this before. So I think it's going to be a learning experience for everybody. So I want to say a big welcome to Abby and Stacia. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So why don't you guys take us through what, what you, wherever you want to start, share uh, some of the questions and I'll uh, share some of the responses we got from the program directors. Absolutely. So um, to start, we just want to go over some demographics of basically who we were collecting um, the data from. Um, so we had a majority of students. Um, there we go. Sorry. It's a little small on my screen. Um, Okay, so we had a um, majority were USMD students. Um, it was about 53% of the responses were from USMD. Um, then to the next larger percent would be the USDO uh, students at about 30%. And then the rest in a smaller um, percentage was USIMGs, non-USIMGs, and previous grad um, applicants. Um, so for the first question, um, we really wanted to assess what were these primary concerns of the medical students um, if they had to rank their top three. Um, so for the, the top three concerns, um, they chose 
interviews, virtual or in person, that was about 31% of students rated that their first concern. Um, the second concern would be the lack of knowledge about a program. Um, that was about 15% of, of students. And then um, exams, that was the third. So um, that was about 15% of students as well. So um, those are obviously tons of concerns <laughs> that we have um, during, during regular application season, but now we want to know how it's going to be different um, with COVID. Yeah, I think those are, are really not surprising that those are on people's minds um, and want to know how things are going to be different. So let me, oh, let me start with the first one, which is this question of, you know, kind of virtual interviews. And I think we have some questions, you know, more, maybe more specifically, that's a little bit general. And I think we all are wondering what exactly that's going to look like. But I, I can, I think, address a little bit. And, you know, I've, again, heard from the program directors around this. So I think everyone's doing some version of the same thing, which well, everyone's doing, everyone you're, uh, clearly are doing interviews virtually. And I think it's going to be done on some sort of either Zoom or WebEx, or some people are using the Thalamus uh, proprietary software, and there may be others out there. Regardless, I think they're all going to look very similar, which is that you're going to be doing an interview via uh, video and audio from uh, a distance with interviewers. Now, there may be some programs that are doing group interviews. I, I haven't heard of that. I just don't, I don't know. I think the, the folks I've talked to, and I think the vast majority are going to do their best to mimic what interviews are like in person. In other words, one applicant talking to one faculty member or resident at a time, most likely in breakout rooms in Zoom or whatever the equivalent is uh, on other uh, platforms. And then people will switch so that's the kind of what interviews are going to look like. And then I think a lot of programs, we certainly are going to have a separate uh, opportunity, call it a meet and greet, call it a you know virtual dinner uh, the night before, where applicants can spend some time just with residents, uh, just as they would if they had a dinner the night before in person, um, and be able to ask questions without any faculty around. And, and those residents uh, will not be involved in the actual uh, kind of interview pro or the actual grading of application process. So it's just a, a social opportunity um, for applicants to get to talk to residents. Uh, so that's the kind of, I think, structure of the interview day. Very similar. I think most program directors, uh, as I will, will still do what we usually do, which is some sort of introductory time on the interview day where we speak and go over the highlights of the program. Uh, I, there may be, uh, and we, we are editing that a little bit and or uh, altering it a little bit and so are a lot of program directors because what we don't want is to make applicants sit through so much zoom time that they're just exhausted so rather than spend you know an hour going through every detail of the program i think a lot of places may have some of that recorded that they can send out to applicants beforehand so they can do that you know on their own time not necessarily on the interview day and then maybe do a shorter little overview and maybe some q and a with the program director the day of the interview so I think that's a lot of the structure, though, you know, again, I can't speak for all 150 program directors, so people may have slight differences in how they're structuring it. So I think that's the, the general thing. And then I'm sure everyone has heard uh, about tips for Zoom at this point, but we certainly would suggest uh, that, and this was reviewed in the ASA uh, seminar as well that Abby was a part of, but we, you know, you want to be as professional as possible. So you dress the same way you would for a real in-person interview. Lighting is really important. You, the worst would be to sit with yourself backlit with a big light or window behind you so that you just look like a black silhouette, right? You want to think about and, and just like you would do anything, I think that's important. If you're giving a, an important speech, you would certainly not give it for the first time ever at the meeting you're giving it at. You would practice it. So similarly, I would highly encourage students to practice, get on Zoom or, you know, whatever platform, see yourself, try to optimize the lighting, make sure that you're used to. And I think probably one of the hardest things is going to be this idea of you need to look into the camera, not at the person, right? Because obviously, if you look at the person, it will look to them like you're not looking at them. So it's this whole contradictory piece of, of video conferencing. If you look at the camera, though, you can't see their face. And that's a little bit disconcerting um, for people who are used to talking to people in person, which hopefully we all are, and reading people's faces and having non nonverbal body language. It's a little disconcerting. 
Um, I think that, you know, one little trick you can try to do is if you move the picture of the person to the very top of your screen, right underneath your camera, then you can real, you can do a little more looking at them and it will still look like you're looking straight at them when they're seeing you. So little tips like that, I think are important. Um, you guys may have some others that you've either heard of or thought of. So let me turn it back to you before we move on to the next question. Uh, so uh, regarding uh, just kind of Zoom etiquette, um, I, I know that there's been a lot of talk about just not having anything super distracting behind you. Um, and uh, a lot of people have like a Zoom setup, whether that be a bookshelf or that be some pictures or uh, whatnot. But that's always a, a good thing to have just so whatever's going on behind you is distracting from you yourself during um, an interview. And, you know, one of the things that are kind of concerning is, um, you know, not every student has the privilege of having, um, you know, a quiet home or, um, you know, a safe environment where they know that they're going to have, you know, total silence and no distractions. And so that's one of the concerns that I know a lot of students have um, in regards to just having a virtual uh, interview. Like, do they need to go to school or go to the hospital? Or is there going to be some sort of mechanism set up to where they're not at a disadvantage uh, on interview day if something out of their control comes out? Yeah, that's a great point, Abby. And I, uh, talking to a variety of program directors, people are definitely going to be a little flexible on this. They recognize that, especially for um, less privileged uh, people coming from less privileged backgrounds or, or, you know, who don't necessarily have the financial means to purchase lighting or to even, as you say, be in a quiet room, um, that those people, you know, it's obviously by no fault of their own and, and, and program directors don't want them to be um, hurt by that in the application process. And so I think a lot of program directors are going to understand that. And, you know, if, for example, a, a baby brother or something were to come wandering into the to the video, uh, is, in my discussions, program directors are not going to hold that uh, against people. Um, you know, that would be as opposed to someone who is, you know, on their phone walking down the street during an interview, right, which clearly um, would not be a good choice. And I don't think anyone's in a position where they have to do that. So things that are you know, unavoidable, I think are going to be, I mean, you want to do your best because I can't speak for all program directors. And, you know, there may be some unconscious, uh, you know, certainly we hope not, but there may well be some unconscious judging of, of um, what may appear to be a, a distracting environment. So you want to, as you said, do your best to optimize your environment. But I do think that program directors are going to be understanding that not everyone is going to have that. Um, I would say uh, that it's probably a good idea if you find that during an interview at any given school uh, or any given program, your uh, environment was disrupted. So, you know, um, maybe your your kid brother or sister does come plowing through and throw something at you or, you know, squirt you with a super soaker or whatever it may be. You know, it's probably a good idea uh, to just shoot an email afterwards to the program director and the coordinator and just say, you know, um, I'm so sorry my brother came through. You know, unfortunately, we didn't have a, another option, but, um, you know, I hope it didn't distract too much. Again, in an in ideal world, you wouldn't need to send that email, but I think just for your own benefit, it's probably a good idea. Uh, so if something like that happens, if it's like your dog barks once or something, I don't think you need to worry about it. But if if you come away feeling like, man, that was not optimal, then I think you might as well send that email. It can't hurt. Um, all right. Any other thoughts on uh, optimization for interviews on your guys' end that you've heard or that students are talking about? So the only thing that I would add would be the um, technology. Um, I know that's a, that's a limited resource as well for some students, um, but if you can ensure, um, making sure that your headphones are operating properly. Um, I just ran into a, an issue with this with Abby the other day, and I, I thought brand new headphones – I'm good to go, but it actually started being crackly and echoey and I'm um, just kind of figuring it out beforehand would have, would have definitely mitigated that whole situation. So, um, yeah, if you can get the fastest internet possible and the best, um, um, earbuds available to you, then I think that that would be very beneficial. Yeah. And I would say that's a great point. And I would add that if you, let's say you don't have a uh, reliable internet at home, which is very possible, you know, talk to your school, don't wait for interviews or the day before to email your dean and ask if you can do it at school. You know, it, it, I would absolutely start now 
having those discussions with with the folks at your medical school and asking, explain the situation and ask them if there's a room that you can use at the medical school with high high speed internet. Um, you know, I will say that again, just as I said up front, we're all figuring this out, and it's possible even at a, a you know a school with super high speed internet that that internet could go down. Right, it could go down right in the middle of interviews. And I think everyone's backup plan is to switch to phone. And so, you know, we certainly are planning and most programs are probably all programs are planning on making sure we have a, a cell phone of each applicant before interview day so that if something goes wrong, we can we can switch to the phone. And I would highly encourage folks to, you know, get, cut cut programs the benefit of the doubt, just as I think programs will cut applicants the benefit of the doubt. And if that happens, if the applicant's internet goes out or if the program's internet goes out, or if the headphones are just too crackly or you can't understand, you know, switching to a phone call, uh, it, though maybe not quite as ideal, is going to be fine. And I don't think programs would hold that against someone. You know, it probably looks bad if you're, he- if you're using headphones and the battery runs out, right? If, the, if half an hour into the first interview, that suggests you probably didn't prepare well. You know, that said, if they're just, uh, you know, something's not working with your internet or, or at the fourth hour of interviews, your, your battery runs out, right? That's probably not your fault. So there will be a lot of, of slack um, that's given on, hopefully on both ends. Certainly we as program directors will be giving to, to applicants this year. So let's talk about the second question you guys brought up and how will you get to know programs, right? I think that's a real concern. And when I've talked to our students here at Hopkins, uh, that is a concern that comes up all the time. How can I get to know programs if I can't go and talk with folks there? Um, do you guys want to elaborate on that at all? I'm happy to share what program directors have said, but anything anything to expand on that? Right. So that was actually a pretty big topic that um, we uh, got in our survey and uh, on the ASA town hall is how am I able to get to know a program that's across the country that I'm really interested in and I wasn't able to do an away rotation. Um, and, you know, and that's what we've been trying to do at the, with the ASA is, you know, provide resources for students to get to be able to gain a little bit of insight into the program. However, the program isn't able necessarily to get um you know, get to know the students. And um, there's a, you know, there's some program directors that say, like, we would love to hear from you. Like, we, if you're really interested in us, like, please reach out. Um, however, there's not really a consensus statement that says, like, this is what you should do if you're really interested in a program and you're not from that region or you don't have any explicit ties to the region. Um, and, you know, just, just regarding uh, not being able to have um, the away rotations, um, a lot of students are concerned with um, the residency programs thinking that either they're not interested in them or, um, you know, that they're, they're going to be at a disadvantage because they weren't able to do that away rotation. Yeah, that's a great, great thing. I will definitely uh, share responses on. Stacia, did you want to expand on that at all or is that pretty, pretty much what it is? That's yeah, that's definitely um, what it is. Um, Abby nailed it. Um, I do also want to um, take this this chance to um, talk about something that the the ASA does have available um, on their website for um, for students to access and programs to access so they can learn more about um, the programs. And um, Abby and two medical students, um, Camille and Nikki, um, I can't remember what school they are from, um, worked diligently to get the um, virtual open house Excel sheet um, available to all um, medical students and to all um, um, program directors or anybody from the school, any representative, so that these program directors can go on there and um, list their event, their open house event with a time and and Zoom link or however they plan on um, hosting the event. And the students can go on there and see, okay, this day on September, whatever, can um, I can sign up and and get to know this school and this these residents and ask them these questions. Um, so that resource was very very beneficial, especially during this time when we can't go um, to every program that we want to go and see or we can't go to their campus. It was kind of a way for um, um, programs to show a video of their facilities. Um, get their residents on there. So that resource, if you don't already know about it, please go check it out. Um, it, it has been awesome. I have used it myself to get to know programs and it is amazing. Great. That's a great tip. 
And I will add that there are over 90 virtual open houses um, listed uh, on that sheet and uh, more being added every single day as programs are realizing that this is such a great resource for students and applicants. Yeah, great. Thank you, guys. So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, there's two things here, right? There's students wanting to get to know programs and there's students concerned about programs getting to know them. So let's let me address each of those. In terms of getting to know programs, uh, you know, this was clear across the board in program directors' responses. They're really encouraging students to check out their online resources. A lot of programs have put a lot of time in this year specifically in revamping uh, their website, creating uh, maybe that they never had before social media presence, whether that's a Facebook account or an Instagram account with highlighting things about their program. So they really are encouraging students to, you know, check these things out. Additionally, there are, as you said, a variety of uh, meet and greets or open houses. There's the official ASA, uh, one that used to happen every year in person, and this year is going to be virtual. And a lot of programs, as you said, are doing separate ones. So there's a lot of opportunities to get to know programs that way. Is it the same as going in person and doing a rotation at a place? Definitely not. I think the the nice thing is that nobody's able to do those rotations, so it's not you're not at a disadvantage from for not having done it. Um, but of course, from a you getting to know the program standpoint, there's no better way than spending a month or two weeks or whatever it is there doing a rotation, and that just can't happen um, this year. So I think you've got to do the best you can through the internet uh, and the online presence and these meet and greets to get to know programs that way. Now, the flip side: how do you get noticed by a program? I think there's a few themes that are clear across the board. Many, many, though not all, programs are asking uh, for applicants to explain why they're interested in that particular program. And most commonly to do that in your personal statement. So what does that mean? Well, it's a little tough. It means you're going to have to have a separate personal statement for a lot of different programs, which you are allowed to do in ERAS, it's going to be, you know, a, a little more work on the part of the students, though I think absolutely worth it. Uh, we are, for example, encouraging students to do this, but not requiring it. So if you decide not to, that's fine. You know, you're not disqualified, but you got to remember that many programs are typically before this year, right, get a thousand or more applications for a small number of spots. This year, we are anticipating a significant increase. Program directors across the country are anticipating an increase. And so if you want to stand out, if you want to get noticed, I think it's worthwhile. Now, of course, you don't have to write from scratch a brand new personal statement for each program. You still have your kind of standard story about you and why you want to go into anesthesia that you're going to share for the first several paragraphs. But your final paragraph or two will will maybe now be altered. And some people used to do this anyway, but this year I would encourage, and I know a lot of program directors are encouraging students to do this. So explain what it is about a program specifically that you want to do. Now, this will require, of course, you to do some research. You're going to have to go online on their website and on their social media accounts and learn about the program so that you know enough to explain why you want to go. But I would argue that's you're going to want to do that before your interview day anyway. So this is work you would do anyway. It's not extra work. The only small amount of extra work is then putting it in writing on that personal statement. There may be some programs that, are at, that ask for a separate essay of some kind explaining this as opposed to putting in the personal statement. Just see what the program says, either on their website or you'll see when you go into ERAS that there's a section that's labeled uh, additional information for applicants and that may or may not. Usually it has a little bit of just an overview of the program. And this year you may see in there a request for additional documentation around why you want to apply. So, you know, keep your eye out for that as you're looking. But that's going to be a really good way. Additionally, my my opinion, and certainly it's shared by some other program directors, is that these meet and greets, while perhaps a good chance to, you know, get your name on the radar screen, are probably not going to sway a lot of things. It's going to be a lot of students with a small number of faculty or program directors. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not going to be the same as kind of 15 minutes one-on-one or 20 minutes or 30 minutes one-on-one that you would get in an interview. It's going to be, if people have been at the ASA meet and greet in the past, it's probably going to be much like that, where it's a lot of people kind of saying hello, maybe asking a question. And so I wouldn't 
if you can't, I guess what I want to reassure students of is if you can't make one for a program you're interested in, or if you do go, but you don't get a lot of face time, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think program directors are going to use those as a way to, to weed out or, or to choose certain applicants to interview. It's going to be the same for the most part as it always has been, which is that the applicant, the paper application is going to be far and away the number one thing that's going to determine who gets an interview and who doesn't. And, you know, uh, so I think that once you get an interview offer, you will then have a lot more opportunity to get to know the program because you'll have probably some sort of small group meet and greet with residents. As I mentioned before, you'll obviously have one-on-one interviews with faculty and the program director, as well as probably some sort of intro session and Q and a with the program director. So you'll have a lot of opportunity. I would suggest that if you are, once you get an interview and you're seriously considering a program, and I suggest this, whether it's in person or virtual, you know, take advantage of that opportunity to talk with residents. And if you don't get enough on the interview day, I wouldn't hesitate to ask, you know, you can email the program coordinator and just say, you know, is there any way I could uh, chat with or email with um, some additional residents? Uh, you know, I really enjoyed the time I had and, and have some more questions I'd love to. I think programs should be, we certainly are very open to applicants communicating with residents afterwards because I tell applicants that I think all program directors feel this way. We want you to know what the experience in our program is for the residents. I can tell you what I think it is, but only the residents can tell you what they think it is, right? What their experience is. And if, if any program is not upfront about wanting you to learn that from the residents, I think that's a big red flag. I think that, you know, you want to know what the resident experience is so that you know what your experience will be like there. And so we highly encourage people to take advantage of time with the residents during their interview day and then feel free to, to have more after. And I think a lot of program directors feel that way. So I think that's, that's what it is. You know, it's, you're not going to have the opportunity to do an away rotation, but I will, I will say that for certainly for big programs like ours, you know, we have about 25 to 27 uh, residents per year. It's a small, tiny fraction of the uh, people we match every year that have done away rotations with us. And I think that's true of most programs. So by no means, it doesn't mean that the fact that you can't do an away rotation means that you can't match there. I mean, it's, you know, it's always nice if we know if we've ha- spent a month with somebody and everybody loves them, there's no better, you know, there's no better uh, way to get uh, to be ranked highly. Right. I mean, that's the that's how you know someone much better than a paper application. But as I said, it's a small fraction who actually um, are even able to do that on a regular year. So I think, you know, to summarize, get to know the program through their website and social media, any kind of meet and greet accounts. You can certainly email the program coordinator with questions. I think you're probably better off starting with the program coordinator, sending them an email rather than program directors directly. And I say that only because program directors uh, are very busy in a lot of ways and are getting tons of these emails. And I think it's a little bit of a coin flip, whether it helps you or hurts you to be uh, sending, you know, a lot of questions that don't need to be specifically sent to the program director. So I would start with the coordinator. If you have questions, they may direct you to the program director or they may be able to answer those questions for you. If it's something specific that you do have for the program director, I think it's totally reasonable to to send them the email as well. Probably best practice, if you think something needs to go to the program director, is to send that it to them, but also copy the coordinator so that, uh, you know, if they have that answer, they can send it back to. So, you know, ultimately... I actually don't think this year is going to be that different in terms of who gets offered interviews. I think it's going to be people with strong paper applications are going to get interviews just like they always have. Um, and there's probably very little that additional communication can. If you're right on that bubble of getting an interview at a program, then it is possible that expressing interest, you know, your explanation in your personal statement or an email that explains why can make a big difference. The one area I will say that probably is most important is if you're applying way out of your region, and I'll use the example of someone who's at a West Coast medical school applying to an East Coast program or vice versa, if you have a reason other than just liking that, that program, if you have a reason, let's say, you're, you have family and you're, apply, you're, you're in school on the East Coast, you're applying to a program in California and you have family there. Well, the program has no way of knowing that. So they are just with, I know for a fact that those programs and similarly we for West Coast folks, you know, the East Coast programs for West Coast applicants, 
you know, we, we tend to get a lot of those applicants who don't come, right? Because they, they apply because they may, you know, see the name or, or know the reputation, but to move themselves across the country, they're a little, you know, less likely to do that unless they have a tie to that region. And so if you do, I think it's very worthwhile to let the program director and coordinator know that to say, you know, I, I know I'm in school in Boston, but, uh, you know, as it turns out, my parents live in San Francisco or L.A. or whatever, or my sister or my fiance. Right. I mean, that you have a reason to want to be in that geographic area. I think that can really play a role. So I would encourage people to let let folks know if you're applying far out of your region, why you have a, a reason to go there. I would not recommend emailing just to say, you know, I know I'm not in the region, but I really like your program. Right. That that's not. I mean, that's kind of the generic reason that anyone would give. So I would only do it if you have a good reason that might actually persuade um, or, or alter people's thoughts on the likelihood that you would uh, go there. Any other, uh, anything else? That's kind of, those are my thoughts on that question and what I've, what I've heard from other PDs. Right. And, so, you know, oh, no, go ahead, Abigail. <laughs> um, so you mentioned kind of in the middle, um, of uh, your summary, uh, the increased number of applications, and that's actually a huge concern amongst uh, applicants is uh, with the increased number of applications, are there going to be increased numbers of interviews? And with the increased number of applications, is there anything that's going to be done to ensure that the same top percent of applicants don't get all of the interviews if the interview numbers aren't increasing? That's a great question. I can tell you it is definitely on program directors' minds just as much as on students' minds. So it's a mix as to whether programs are increasing the number of interviews or not. Uh, about 50-50 from the, from the responses I got. So, you know, I think definitely a chunk of programs are increasing and on average uh, by about 10 to 20% the number of interviews they're doing. Um, and others are not. They're, they're actually saying that what they're going to do is just be a little more, they're going to keep the numbers, but be a little more selective around regional, um, you know, really trying to, to keep the people they offer to, to those that are in the region, even at their own medical school, of course, and then in the region, because they think those are the most likely to go. Now, is that unfortunate or even unfair to people outside the region? Of course. Uh, but I do understand why program directors are doing it, because if they are going to have a huge number of applicants, extra, you know, additional applicants, they, and not, and only have the same number of spots. They really do need to keep it to the people they think are most likely to come. Now, you also mentioned how, uh, you know, do we prevent the, you know, 80 top applicants in the country? Now, how we define top applicant, you know, is a little maybe um, amorphous, but let's just leave it at, at generic top applicants from taking 80 interviews in every single program in a year when there's no cost of travel and hotel and all of that. Well, that is the, the number one concern uh, for program directors, and I'm sure very high for students too. And the answer is we don't know. I think the reason a lot of programs are increasing the number of interview spots is exactly that, so that, you know, to try to avoid that. There were a lot of program directors advocating for um, what's being done now or piloted at least in OBGYN, which is an idea of limiting either the number of applications you can submit or the number of interviews you can accept. I think probably it makes the most sense to, to think about it from an interview side. Um, but uh, that is, uh, I think, something that really has been talked about a lot and now in this, in this year more than ever. There have been some Proposals put forward, uh, Jeff Berger, who's the chair of anesthesia at GW, uh, published in JGME a few years ago, a proposal, and there have been others uh, similarly proposing similar things, to have a multi-tiered match where you would have, or interview season, where you'd have applicants limited to a certain number of interviews they can do in round one, and then there'd be a, a first match. So based on those interviews, people would match, and then there'd be a second round, and then maybe the third round would be the soap that there is now. Um, and that would certainly, hopefully, ease the burden on both applicants and programs. So far, there has not been a lot of um, uptake from, the, from ERAS and from NRMP uh, um, and the ACGME around, you know, kind of trying to mandate that. 
And of course, no program is in a position to kind of do it on their own. So those are all things being talked about. They're not, it's too late. They're not going to happen for this year. I think we'll all learn a lot from OBGYN and what they're doing. And if that goes well, maybe that'll be a model for the rest of us. Unfortunately, none of that helps for this year. So we, we may well see a situation where a variety of programs don't fill because they had the same applicants as everyone else. Uh, and those people can only match at one program. And if they ate up the interviews at a lot of programs, then you're going to have programs who, who may not fill. And so, you know, the good news is for, you know, applicants who don't match may well have a lot of really great spots in programs that didn't fill, who usually would fill, where they can uh, either get into in the SOAP or, um, or after, if they're still are unfilled positions, can get an out-of-match spot once the match is closed. So there's a lot of possibilities this year. Uh, that, that probably doesn't allay any um, anxiety because, you know, it is what it is. But I can tell you that it's, um, it's a concern shared by both program directors and applicants. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Anything else on that topic or should we move on? Uh, just to add, there were a couple runner-up um, concerns that I think are important to, to mention. Um, so we kind of already discussed the lack of interactions with residents and how we can kind of go about um, getting those interactions um, through whether it's an open house or emailing or, or whatever it is. Um, but the last one was letters of recommendation. Um, I know that a lot of people are struggling with those. Um, so what were the thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. So you guys asked or students were asking, what do we do if we can't get as many letters or a chair letter was another concern. We can't get a chair letter or we can't even get an anesthesiology letter at all. So this was also a mixed bag. Uh, And let me address kind of each one. In terms of not being able to get a chair letter, no, actually, this was not mixed. Program directors uniformly said, if you don't have a, a letter from the chair, it's not a big deal. The only exception might be that if everyone else applying from your school does have one from your chair, but you don't, that might be a little bit of a red flag. But in the setting of, you know, just the chair letters not being there, uh, that is not a concern. People are very willing to, to just not worry about that this year. In terms of not as many letters, so, you know, let's say you have three instead of four or maybe even two instead of three or four. I think it's a mixed bag. Some programs are willing to say, look, we get it. It's a tough year and, um, you know, we'll take what we can get. And others still want you to have at least three letters. So I think realistically, even if they're not from anesthesia, you know, and, and people are very, you know, flexible this year around this. No one expects you to have three or four anesthesiology letters. I don't, we never expected you to have three or four anesthesiology letters. And I doubt many programs did, but certainly this year, there's a lot of flexibility. The hardest one, I think, is what if you don't have any anesthesiology letter? Now, the good news is a lot of program directors felt like, look, if it was a private practice letter, that's fine. This year, we'll take private practice and we'll give it equal weight as we would to an academic rotation. But if you have nothing, right, you have not done any anesthesia that allows you to get a letter, you know, again, some program directors said, don't worry about it, we're this year doesn't matter. We're totally flexible. As long as you have letters that speak well of you, it doesn't matter who they're from. Another program director said, you know, my concern is if you haven't done enough anesthesia to get a letter, then how do you know you really want to go into anesthesiology, right? Now, sure, maybe you've done some research in anesthesia, or maybe you know some people in anesthesia. Um, and I, I, my, I think what I would encourage people to do is if the, if the reason you've decided to apply in anesthesiology is because you know, you know, anesthesiologists who you've kind of gotten to know on a personal level or, you know, doing research with, even if you haven't done a clinical rotation with them, better to have them write a letter and talk about you as a person. At least then you've got an anesthesiologist who can say this, I know this person. Yes, I haven't worked with them in the OR, but I have done research with them or I have had a variety of meetings with them. I think they would be great for this field. That's better than than nobody who can say anything about you and anesthesia. But, you know, I would, what I would encourage people to do is find a way to do, even if it's like 
a random weekend where you, you know, shadow the call team in the OR doing anesthesia, you know, whether or not that attending will feel comfortable writing you a letter, I don't know, but you can ask. And maybe if you do that a few times with the same attending or something, it is, I think clearly there are some programs where it's going to be a major disadvantage or even a deal breaker if you don't have any anesthesiology letter. The good news is there are some programs that are willing to not to waive that and to say, okay, look, just good letters, doesn't matter who they're from. So do your best, try to get at least one letter from an anesthesiologist, ideally someone who can speak to you clinically, but if not, at least someone who can just speak to you. And if you can't, then just get as strong a letters as you can. Okay, thanks for all that that advice. Um, the last thing that I know some students are struggling to to learn more about is um, LORs from um, virtual preceptors. So a lot of the um, students have, um, and myself included, have done um, OBGYN being a six week rotation at my at my school, three three weeks in. Uh, virtual and then three weeks in the hospital once we were allowed to come back after COVID. So um, is it acceptable to have an LOR from a virtual preceptor? Yeah. So I think there's no question this year that that will be accepted in a way that, you know, it probably wouldn't have been before. And I think program directors think that's definitely better than nothing. If you're choosing between someone who can only speak to your kind of knowledge base and questions via a virtual rotation versus someone who can speak to seeing you in person, no question, you know, you would want the person who's, who's been able to speak to your in-person clinical skills and interactions with patients and others. But definitely if you, I would, I would get that anesthesia letter, even if it's from a virtual rotation or, uh, you know, let's say you, uh, Stacia, for you, you're going to have an OBGYN letter. If it happens to be that you think the strongest letter will come from that three weeks of virtual do that. And program directors said, uh, you know, several definitely made the point specifically to say better to get a strong letter from someone who either isn't an anesthesiologist or who's involved in a virtual rotation than a totally generic letter from someone who you worked with in person. So now you, of course, don't know what's going to be in that letter, but usually you can get a feel for, you know, did someone seem really enthusiastic about your performance? Did they, you know, offer to write you a letter? That's often a really good sign. Um, if it's someone who you think you just peripherally knew, uh, I would be careful with that because a generic letter uh, can sometimes be worse than, you know, than no letter at all. So you want to be very careful with that. Right. All right. right. Yeah. Any, anything else about letters that you guys want to touch on or should we move on to the next point? I think we're ready to move on to the next point. All right. What do you want to bring up next? So, um, there was a lot of concerns about um, step two CK, um, you know, with COVID uh, kind of canceling a lot of prometric um, appointments. I mean, I know for me, my step one appointment was canceled four different times. So I had to uh, deal with that. And I know that the um, third year turned fourth years also had to deal with, you know, rescheduling step two CK. So um, there's a lot of applicants that had questions uh, regarding if their Step 2 CK score, um, not having one by the time they submit their ARIS application, is that going to put them at a disadvantage to receiving interviews? And secondly, um, there was actually a pretty good question um, regarding the recommendation of taking Step 2 CK before October 21st. Um, when they may not feel as ready versus taking it after October 21st and submitting their score maybe in November. Um, and would that put them at a disadvantage? Great. So, yeah, I'm, I know this is on a lot of people's minds. And, and here I'm glad to say we've got some pretty definitive feedback. Programs are across the board not going to be uh, holding it against you if you don't have a step two CK uh, score in there at the time of applications going out to program directors. Um, the only little caveat is you obviously can't help yourself with a score you don't have, by which I mean, if you have a low step one score and a high step two score, universally program directors said that is helpful. We will pay attention to that. You can help yourself with a better step two score. Of course, if you don't have a step two score, then that doesn't work, right? But the good news is that if you have a good step one score, but you just haven't had the opportunity to take step two, 
nobody this year is going to hold that against you, count that down, or be less likely to offer you an interview because of the absence of that score. So I, th- I can reassure people about that. And sim- therefore, if you think my choices are rush and take it before a certain t- date or take my time and take it a little later, certainly I think you're safe to wait and take it, uh, take your time a little later. Again, you know, step two CK tends to be an easier test. Almost, not, not without exception, but almost universally, students do better on step two than they do on step one. It's very unusual. It happens, but it's very unusual to have a lower step two CK score than step one. So it is a chance to help yourself, but you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by rushing, not having enough time to study, do, and actually doing worse on step two CK than on step one. So I would say it's not going to hurt your application, and program directors are pretty unanimous on this, uh, to not have step two CK. They understand there are a lot of reasons why you may not have had it. But if you think it'll help you and you can get it done and study and take it in time, then, you know, you do it. So you get that chance to help yourself. And kind of following that point, um, you know, with the, there's a lot of programs that have um, score cutoffs. Um, and uh, there was a couple applicants that asked about uh, whether or not those score cutoffs would be very firm this um, cycle or if program directors would take a more holistic uh, review of their application. Great question. I think this comes up every year, regardless of, of COVID. And I will say that uh, program directors were pretty clear that they're going to be doing things, you know, if, if kind of the way they always have around scores, right? And, and maybe even more, uh, unfortunately, and I think all program directors share uh, the view that nobody likes relying on scores, right? Everybody knows that the only thing a multiple choice test score predicts is how well you'll do on another multiple choice test. It has nothing to do with how good of a doctor you will be. Now, unfortunately in anesthesia, there are high stakes multiple choice tests that residents have to take and pass, most notably the basic exam. And if you can't pass the basic exam, you can't graduate from residency. And so that's why program directors have to pay, you know, have to weigh test scores to a certain extent, but nobody likes it. People would much rather do a more holistic approach where they could somehow hopefully get get a feel for how good of a doctor that person, how good of a resident and how good of a future doctor that person is going to be. Uh, the problem is this year, let's just say that an, a program might get a thousand applications on a usual year and this year they get 2000. Well, you know, even harder to give each applicant, uh, each application, any kind of holistic review. So unfortunately it looks like scores are going to play at least uh, the role they usually do, maybe more in trying to, you know, narrow down those applications. Um, and, you know, I would say that while, again, nobody likes that, there are no program directors out there who like doing that. They do it out of necessity. And, you know, someone, it may have been on the ASA uh, seminar you were on, Abby, that uh, I think someone stated that the amount of time, or may, this may have actually been published in, in something I read, but if program directors did even just a 15-minute holistic review of applications and they got a thousand of them, it would require 40 hours a week for like, you know, and I, I'm, this math may be wrong because I'm just trying to remember what I heard or read, but you know, for something like eight weeks, right? Well, remember program directors are practicing anesthesiologists. So at the ACGM, he requires them to get, depending on how many, how many residents they have, either one or two days a week of protected time, but that's for all of the administrative work for their entire program. So there's just no way that they could spend eight weeks of 40 hours a week doing a holistic review. And so, you know, look, it's not a good system. Program directors are just as frustrated with it as applicants. But uh, unfortunately, what that means is that, yes, I think your scores are going to play a role. What program directors did say, and I would encourage people to do, if you have a low step one score or step two CK or both, and you think that there's, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, explanation that makes sense, uh, you know, be transparent. I mean, I would highly encourage people to put that in their personal statement. You can ask letter writers to address it too. You can even send an email to the program coordinator explaining, you know, why you think it was an unusual score for you. It's a little hard if both step one, if you have a step one and a step two CK and they're both really low, that's a little tougher. But if you have a, let's say a low step one and a better step two CK or a a low step one and you haven't taken step two CK, you know, if you can give an explanation around why this was, maybe it was a particularly tough time of your life, or maybe, you know, you have struggled with standardized tests, but, you know, performed really well on 
rotations. Um, you know, giving some sort of explanation can really help. I think that an unexplained, you know, very low step one score is tough. It's going to be tough for that to, to get through any sort of process. Even if there's not a, a strict cutoff, people are going to pay attention to it. Yeah, that's great advice. A lot of people were concerned about that, um, especially the the students that um, may have had the low step one, because step two is now just that much more important, especially with uh, CS being completely out of the picture as well. Um, right. So in addition to the, <clears throat> the exams, um, there is also shelf exams that um, students are concerned about. I know I'm missing a couple um, just based off of Prometric centers not being open and the availability of um, institutions hosting uh, virtual um, uh, testing facilities within your within your home, um, th that's also limited as well. So, what um, what are the thoughts on having missing shelf exams? You're not or miss missing um, grades because um, a lot of these students have only had maybe one or two rotations before COVID had hit. I had my two largest rotations right before. So I technically only have two grades, right? So that, that doesn't necessarily look great. So what are the, um, what are the thoughts on that? Yeah, good question. Program directors, again, this is pretty unanimous, are very willing to be flexible around this. They understand there's been a lot of disruption that missing grades or, you know, maybe a school that usually gives honors grades and has now gone to completely pass fail because of COVID, they will understand, they will not hold it against you if you have a missing grade or several missing grades, or if you have all passes from a school that normally would have honors, you know, that is going to be completely acceptable this year. Now, that said, if you have, you know, again, if everybody's just got passes or missing grades, all that means is that program directors have to look at something else to decide whether to offer you an interview. And unfortunately, I think that's going to put even more emphasis on this on step one, because that may be the only objective number they have if, in the absence of grades. Uh, and, you know, I think it will put a little more emphasis too on any, any comments you have from rotations you have done, right? So in that Dean's letter where they actually have comments, that's going to be important because it may be the only thing if, if all you've got are passes and only from a couple of rotations, then seeing how you did and reading that is going to be important. And of course, your letters also, which presumably will come from some of those rotations. Now, you know, one idea is if you had a partial rotation or maybe even a complete rotation, but you don't have a grade because you didn't get to take the shelf, I would, you know, do a couple of things. One, if you, if, it was, if you did great on that rotation and you connected with faculty, think about getting a letter from someone because they can say in that letter, you know, you're not going to see a grade from Stacia because, you know, our Prometric Center didn't allow her to take the shelf. But I can tell you she did an amazing job. So that's really, you know, powerful as well. And then again, any, anything you think is an aberration, be transparent. I can't emphasize this enough that there's such a difference between an unexplained bunch of missing grades and an explained bunch of missing grades, right? So if you have a bunch of missing grades, you know, shoot an email to the program coordinator or put it in your personal statement to say, look, you know, I recognize that there are several grades that are listed as incomplete. This is because we were not allowed to take shelf exams and therefore my school will not report grades. Um, you know, if you'd like further, uh, you know, letters or further information on how I did on those rotations, I'm happy to send that. That kind of thing is really powerful for two reasons. One, Program directors may say, you know, great, yes, I would like that. But even if not, even if they don't need it, it says something about you that you're willing to be upfront and transparent and communicate well. And to be honest with you, I can't prove it. I don't have any data on this. But I would argue that those communication skills are much more predictive of the kind of doctor you're going to be than any random test score. Right. Anything thank else? You. Yeah. What do you, what's next? Abigail, did you have something that you wanted to add? Um, well, I'm just kind of looking through some of the like free response questions that um, students uh, replied in their um, in their survey, and um, I mean, a lot of people just you know you kind of spoke on this, but um, a lot of people are just um, afraid of being screened out. Um, I, I guess there's not a lot of um, knowledge about uh, how the uh, application review process is done and how interviews are selected. And I think a lot of uh, students and applicants think that um, there's kind of a 
a filter mechanism that um, just kind of filters certain scores. And um, there's a lot of people that had questions about just kind of the transparency of that process. Yeah, I'm fully aware that that's a concern. And, you know, I think every program's a little different. Different programs have different rubrics, different mechanisms of how they review applications and what they put emphasis on. I think it's, you know, the emphasis may be different. The the kind of weight put on different things may be different, but there's no question that, uh, you know, grades and scores to the extent that they exist this year are important because as we've said, they are the objective thing. If you're going to screen, if you're going to have a cutoff, those you, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be based on those things. Um, the good news is de- definitely not all programs have a set cutoff or a set screen. Um, that said, I think we'd be being dishonest if we said it doesn't matter what your step one score is. If your step one score is 195, it's going to be a real struggle versus a step one score of you know, 230, 240, 250, 260, right? So that's just reality. And, and again, maybe unfair. I will say that, you know, the program directors aren't, aren't being cruel here. They're, they're doing what the system is, is forcing them to do, which is two things. As I said, one, uh, someone who has a 195 on step one is going to struggle to pass the basic exam, unless there was some totally extenuating circumstance that led to that 195, in which case I would highly encourage you to take step two CK and, and, you know, show that. Um, but it just is right. I mean, again, it has nothing to do with your future ability as a doctor, but it's not up to program directors. If you can't pass the basic, you can't graduate residency. And that's not something program directors can change. So I think a lot of us are pushing the ABA to change that, but that may or may not happen. So as it is now, that's an important thing. And then the other is of course, that you have to, if you got, if you're going to get 2000 applications this year, you're going to have to figure out a way to, to, get down to a reasonable number to review holistically. And, you know, as, as unfair as it may be, a lot of programs are going to, to some extent, use scores to do that. So, you know, I, I wish I could reassure people and tell them it doesn't matter, but it is what it is. And as, as in all years, and certainly this year, it's going to be a factor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the transparency of the programs is is a huge problem every year. I mean, applicants always want to know um, what are they looking for, what are their ideal um, um, residents. And my only suggestion would be based off of what I have seen through um, the virtual open houses that students are getting those questions answered by the their desired programs. So um, I would just highly recommend um, if you can to attend open houses or reach out to residents or reach out to the the program coordinator and ask maybe for a residence contact information. Um, and then you can kind of try to find, um, some of the transparency, um, of that program. Um, but aside from that, I think we covered majority of the data. Um, the only last question that I would have for you, uh, Dr. Wolfall would be, what would be the single greatest piece of advice, um, for medical students during, um, this, um, application cycle? And not to put you on the spot, but um, I, I think that um, I've gotten really, really great responses from program directors um, um, in the past when I've asked this question. So, so what would you recommend? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, mine is communicate. And by that, I mean, be transparent and communicate yourself. I mean, again, we, we wish all programs would be transparent. I know students would love it if, you know, they could get the inside view of everything that's going to go on. And, you know, unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen, that, that things are going to be completely transparent that way. But I can tell you, as I said before, that if you really communicate well and you, if there's any, you know, concern in your application, if you address it and you, uh, you know, address it in an email, address it in your personal statement, uh, whether that's a step score, whether it's a, a failing grade or a missing grade, whether it's a, you know, something on, on file that's going to come across in the dean's letter that's, that's a little unusual. Um, you know, a, a great example is some people have a, um, you know, there's a question on ERAS that asks if you've ever had a, a felony or misdemeanor or something like that, right? If that answer is yes, um, putting an explanation in there is incredibly important, uh, you know, and I would really urge people to do that because, some states, if you have a, you know, um, moving violation, right, you were speeding, that actually is, is a misdemeanor, right? And you have to, you have to um, disclose it on that application. But you want to, want to be very clear, right? Tell, I mean, I don't know any programs that if you have one speeding ticket are not going to, you know, are going to hold that against you, but they, but you got to tell them that. 
So I think communicating, communicating is huge. Now, maybe there's a more significant, uh, you know, a crime that you were, um, you know, charged with or, or convicted of. That doesn't have to be a complete, you know, disqualification, but certainly you need to explain the situation. So I think communicating is huge. Express your interest in programs, you know, take that extra time to put that in your personal statement. If you know anybody, like, you know, maybe you know a faculty member or a resident in a program, that's powerful. Having someone at the program advocate for you, if they're willing to do it, is really important. Similarly, maybe someone at your school, you know, has a connection. Maybe they did residency at, an, at a program that you're interested in. Having them, asking them to reach out. You know, I, I don't want, and I would encourage applicants, don't be afraid to ask for help especially this year, right? You may think, oh, I don't want to inconvenience, you know, this, this faculty member at my, at my school. I don't want to make them reach out for me. I don't think it's appropriate to ask someone to send, you know, an email to 40 programs. But I think if you say, look, these are, you know, my top few programs. And if you have any connection there, you know, it would really be, I'd be so grateful if you'd be willing to reach out. People are going to be happy to do that. They know that this year is going to be tough. So, your communication, your advocacy for yourself, your transparency with anything that you think you should be explained in your application, that's my biggest piece of advice. Again, for two reasons. One, program directors are, are going to have to make tough decisions this year, and having those explanations will help. And two, it says a lot about you. If you can communicate well, it says a lot about the kind of resident and the kind of physician you're going to be. Yes, definitely. That's that's probably the greatest piece of um, advice that we've gotten is is um, about communication, transparency, being who you are. Um, this isn't my advice. It's just something that I've heard from other program directors. And it's I just want to pass it along. And um, for anyone that is um, nervous or having anxiety about all of these these virtual interviews, um, I know that I definitely suffer from um, stuttering when I'm nervous and things like that. Um, my only suggestion um, would be to just be yourself. If you stutter, if you make a mistake, it's totally fine. Laugh at yourself um, and just just be you and and everything will just be just be fine. Yeah, that's great advice. Thanks, Stacia. <laughs> Abby, any last questions or comments on your end? No, I think we covered it all pretty in depth and um, we're just really grateful to have this opportunity to address some of these concerns that applicants are having. Great. Well, I'm grateful to you two for collecting this data and sharing it. And uh, I hope that this will be useful for students out there. Um, let's turn to the portion of our show where we give random recommendations to the audience. Um, I'll start with a, a audience recommendation. So, um, and I apologize because I may be mispronouncing uh, her name, but I got a, a recommendation from Agneska Jackson. Uh, she's actually an SRNA in the United States Army Graduate Program in Anesthesia at the Dwight D. Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Georgia, and she recommends two books. She says two really great books that she thinks that our listeners might enjoy. The first is Do No Harm by Henry Marsh. That's a book. He's a neurosurgeon, and it's a book about kind of what it is to be a neurosurgeon and looks really interesting. And the second is War Doctor, Surgery on the Frontline by an author named David Knott. And Agneska points out that they're both available as audiobooks for those who find listening fits better in their busy schedules than actually reading a book. So that's exciting. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Uh, and let me turn to Abby and Stacia. What recommendations do you have for the audience? So um, I have a, a recommendation. So over the, the quarantine slash my extended dedicated uh, study time, I um, picked up biking. So I... Um, I've always like ran and swam, but I picked up biking and with, you know, it being 90 degrees in Florida all the time, um, it's a little bit easier to bike inside. So I ended up getting a trainer for my bike and, um, it has capability to hook up to an app called Zwift and there's virtual, there's virtual racing and you can ride with other people and it's actually a really good, um, you know, it has a really good digital format and it feels like you're on a treadmill, but it's for your bike. <laughs> so, um, Zwift, uh, Z W I F T. It's a really, really awesome application. Very cool. All right. Well, I'll try to find a link to that and put it in the show notes as well. Stacia, how about you? Yeah, Abby, don't uh, rub in the good weather over there in Florida. Cause I'm always freezing <laughs> in Chicago. Um, 
Okay, so um, for someone that uh, that values um, wellness very much, I've always been into wellness and taking care of yourself, especially when you are caring for others. I think that's super important. Um, so the Give Back Yoga uh, Foundation, um, it basically offers yoga um, to those in need. Um, the, that could be veterans, prisoners, um, individuals facing mental in physical illness, um, they basically just partner with um, the community, different individuals um, on a large scale or a small scale to um, provide uh, yoga, something something relaxing um, to these populations that face systemic bias and prejudice and everything like that. So um, what they ask is that if they do teach you to be a yoga instructor is to go ahead and teach others and just pay it forward and continue the cycle of wellness. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that as well. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. And finally, my random recommendation is this. I've recommended Peter Atia's podcast, The Drive, before um, in general. And I'll say that I think I talked about this in a prior episode. He had done some really interesting, a series of interviews um, with uh, Matt Walker, who runs the Sleep Lab at Berkeley and wrote the book, Why We Sleep. And he had just last week, he had Matt back to do another interview. And it's again about sleep and it's fascinating. They talk about the impact COVID has had. There's actually some data around how COVID has impacted the sleep of people in, uh, in the world. And again, emphasizing some of the just how important sleep and sufficient sleep and sufficient quality of sleep is. They give some tips in there for how you can, you know, try to improve your sleep if you're struggling with it. Uh, and they go in, of course, this is a, a doctor interviewing a, do a, well, interviewing a researcher. And so um, they talk about uh, some of the other uh, kind of science behind this stuff. So really, um, really interesting uh, topic. And I would highly encourage people to check out that podcast. All right. Um, Thank you both so much for coming on the show. I think this was great and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. That was awesome. So happy to have had them on. And I hope everyone got a lot out of that as well. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment that others can learn from. Maybe you have a more specific question, something we didn't cover, or maybe you have, maybe you're a PD out there and you've got a response that we didn't cover. So let us know. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking for Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thanks so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Big thank you, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who has been our social media manager in the past and is now still helping out with some of the outlines for the episodes. And, of course, our ACRAC original music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo, you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, Stacia Grebon and Abigail Shermer, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.